You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I'm glad you're here this weekend, this Labor Day weekend. Um, A lot of our folks are gone, but I'm glad you're here. And I love these holiday weekends because they give me the opportunity to do a little more teaching than preaching. And I really want to just share with you from my heart as we move toward Um, Of course, this kind of begins for churches a new year, this time of year. And I just want to talk to you about the church. Let me welcome some folks here. Um, uh, Jeff Curley, where are you? Where'd you go? Right there. See that boy right there? That's Jeff Curley. I was his pastor when he was a boy. Look how big. Stand up and show him how big you are, son. He's going to look. And then his wife, that's Allison Barefoot. Now, see, I just know you as Allison Barefoot. But then when I left, you went off and married him. And they've got their children, and we're glad you're here. Uh, love those folks and their family, and uh, love High Point. You tell them I said hey up there, and I'll be with y'all in November, by the way. Okay, now, you got your copy of God's Word. Gives me this chance to talk to you this morning instead of really preaching so much. Every church has its own reputation. Green Street in High Point, North Carolina has a great reputation. It's a great fellowship, great church. Uh, since I left, they've had great preaching um, since I've been gone, as y'all will when my time is up here. Uh, but churches are known by certain characteristics. You know, you'll hear some church, oh man, they've got great worship over there. Some churches will say, oh man, they've got a great singles ministry or great young marriage Or you'll hear about another church, well, you know, that's a theologically liberal church. And uh, I just want to tell you, you want to stay away from that. But uh, then you got, you know, oh, they're fundamentalists over there. I'd run into the arms of fundamentalists before I would a liberal any day. Anyway, you know, but churches have those reputations. This is this kind of church. It's that kind of church. They have this characteristic. They have that characteristic. And that's really kind of what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi. And he's telling them what kind of church he wants them to be. Now, what kind of church are we? You know, churches over the last 30, 40 years have done something that has become very familiar to everybody. They come up with their own mission statement. They may call it something different, but here is our mission statement right here. We are generations. Now, let me just stop with that because we like that. We like being generations. We aren't a church that focuses on reaching 20-something-year-olds. We're not a church that just focuses on reaching 30-something-year-olds. We're a church. We want to reach everybody. We think that everybody from the smallest child to the oldest senior adult has something to offer, that it makes the fellowship rich when all of God's people are together. We've got people here that are parents and children and grandchildren and even some great-grandchildren. And uh, what a great thing to have a church. Some churches are known for that. They're just a big family church. They're a church where all the families are connected. So we're generations, and what are we doing? We're helping our busy community. Now, let me ask you, are you busy? See, y'all are laughing or just, you know, smirking. Sure, we're all busy. Everybody I know is busy. All you got to do is ask them. They'll tell you. We're busy. We're generations helping our busy community, which means this. We are people that in the midst of our busyness, we are committed to something. What are we committed to? We're committed to this community knowing Christ, not finding Christ. Christ didn't lost. But knowing Christ, we want people 
in this community and this city to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to live for him. Now, you say, well, why are you doing this Labor Day weekend? I'm going to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to remind you of who we are. A bunch of you are new since we went through this. A lot of you have come in. You've never heard this, so I'm going to go through it. Out of this, we want to help them know Christ, lead them to the Lord, and live for him. We want them to live for the Lord, and we have five values that help us and five values that will help us help them know the Lord. I'm going to give you those five values right now. Here they are. Truth with transformation. I'm going to deal with that in just a, just a moment. That's the Word of God. Number two, relationships with authenticity. Uh, that you, you find that in your, in your life groups. Um, it's great to gather in here, but we can't break down and build relationship when we're all in the midst of a worship service like this. So we want you to have genuine relationship with somebody. Number three, generosity with joy. You can find joy in being generous. Uh, how does that help somebody know Christ? It helps them to know Christ that they can trust him with the one thing they don't trust anybody else with, and that's their finances. So we, we want to be people that trust God with everything. So there's generosity with joy. There's evangelism with urgency. We want to tell people about Jesus Christ. What's happened to us can happen to them. And prayer with persistence. That's all you're always should be our default. What are we going to do? Let's pray first. We've got this situation. Let's pray. We've got that situation. Let's pray. It should be a persistent part of our life, a daily part of our life. And listen, Paul is really talking about much of this in Philippians chapter 1. For those of you that went to Philippi with us, uh, you remember that incredible place. Philippi was a place where it was built, literally it was built off of the retired soldiers of the legions that had fought against Brutus and Cassius. Anthony and Octavius let their senior soldiers go, and they founded there uh, a new city of Philippi, and uh, it, became what, it, it became a colony of Rome. In other words, not everywhere was a colony of Rome, but Philippi was. It meant little Rome. It, it meant that these people had everything and every privilege that the city of Rome had. So it was made up of those folks. That's where the gospel went first when Paul came over from Asia Minor into Europe. He stops at Philippi, and of course, he attends church down by the river. Lydia gives her heart to the Lord, and then you're going to have the Philippian jailer and his whole family and many others that are going to come to Christ. Well, Paul travels on, and he's going to write this letter while he's in prison. Uh, just like he did Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, the four prison epistles of Paul under his first Roman imprisonment. So he's going to write to them, and he's going to tell them, this is what I want you to be. Uh, this is what I want you to do. Now, I've just given you our mission statement, and I've just shared with you our five values. Let me tell you what most people in the church build their church experience on. One of four things. Number one, personality. A lot of people build their church experience on the personality. It has to be the preacher or the minister of music or the minister of discipleship. Whatever it is, they get hooked up with a personality or they're in a life group and their whole life is that life group and it's based on personality. Well, let me ask you something. What happens 
when the pastor leaves or the pastor dies or the pastor goes away or that life group of yours, three of those couples move out and you're left there without three of those couples, your whole church experience is going to collapse, isn't it? That's why you don't build your life on a personality. You don't build your church experience on Mac Brunson. Amen. Goes right there. That's very important, nor any other personality. You've got a vision of what God's called us to be, not a personality. You're not called to any person other than Jesus Christ. So there's, there's personality. Number two, there is a position. Well, I've got a position. I hold a position in the church, and uh, I like that, and it gives me a little bit of uh, notoriety and uh, all the things that go with holding up. Well, what are you going to do when somebody changes your position? What are you going to do when the church votes you out of that position and puts somebody else in that position? And your church life is going to be kaput, right? That's why you don't build your church life on position. What about program? Programs change. Man, if I went through the programs we had when I was 12 years of age, you would think, what are those? The, most of you have never heard, most of you never heard of the programs that we had when I was coming up. You know why? Because they changed. Something different came along. Something better came along. A new pastor came in and wanted to do something else. If you build your church life on program, I'm here as long as the program is here. Well, God help you. Because I can tell you something, the program's going to change at some point. Let me give you the fourth thing, and the fourth thing is this. It's place. 17, 18 years ago, this place was a mile down the road at that place. And from what I hear, from what I've been told, because I don't know, I was not here, but I've been told that everybody that was on the committee that helped move this church from that place to this place, after they moved, they left. It's a change of place. Who cares what the place is? Who cares what the facility really is, is like? Let me let you in on something. God's going to burn it all up one day anyway. All of it's going to be burned up. So I wouldn't put my heart in a place. I've known people, oh, my granddaddy was buried here. Listen, yes, and it's so dead, if your granddaddy could get up and move, he'd move too. <laughs> I don't get hung up on a place or a personality or a program or a position. Paul comes and he says, I'm going to give you five things that I'm looking for. Look with me now at the text. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. I'm getting in the teacher mode because I, I start teaching Tuesday uh, to uh, doctoral students at Southwestern. That's your major verb right there. If you were one of my students, I'd be wanting to know, where's the major verb in this pericope? Well, that's it right there. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, live like you're saved. Live like your profession. You see the word worthy there? Axios is the word in the Greek. It's our word axle. What does an axle on your car do? It balances the car. You know, if you didn't have an axle on your car, one wheel would turn this way, one wheel would turn that way, you'd go nowhere. It balances out the car. Paul is saying this, there has got to be in the Christian life, there has got to be in the church a balance between your profession of faith 
and the way you live life. There's got to be a balance there. It does you no good to tell everybody that you are a believer in Christ and you go out here and you live like the devil. Amen goes right there. I have to keep telling y'all that. That's why we in church so long. Um, he said, listen, it's got to balance. Seriously, there has got to be a balance between your profession of faith and the way you live your Christian life. And so he comes to the church at Philippi and he says, conduct yourself, live in a manner worthy, live in a way that you are worthy of being called the church of Jesus Christ. You're worthy of that, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Now, do you hear what he's saying right there? Paul's in prison, and he says, you know, I want you to live like this. I want you to have this reputation, that you're this kind of church. You're balanced. The people of God must balance their profession of faith and the way they live the Christian life. The church must balance that. And he says, I want to hear that's your reputation. That's the characteristic. When they talk about you in Philippi or across Macedonia, I want them to say, that's the church that walks the talk. You know, they don't just talk. They walk the talk. They live like it. And he says, if I come, I want to see that. And even if I don't come, I want you to live that way. I heard one guy say, this is the Eddie Haskell verse of the Bible. Y'all know who Eddie Haskell is? I got to explain. See, some of y'all don't know the classics. My word. What are we talking about? Leave it to Beaver. Eddie Haskell was the, he was just the jerk. Whenever June and Ward were around, he was, he was the epitome of manners and grace. But when June and Ward were not around, he was just a little devil is what he was. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Whether I'm there, whether June and Ward are there, or whether June and Ward are not there, I want you to live like this. Now, he's going to give you five things. Number one, the first thing is this. I want you to hold to the truth of God's Word. Do you see what he says in verse uh, 27? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you are standing firm. There it is. Standing firm. It's a military term, by the way. In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He wants them standing firm in what? In the faith of the gospel. He wants them holding on to the gospel, the word of God. You stand firm, military term, you don't give up ground. We captured this ground and I'm not backing up. I love that old patent saying, I don't like to have to take over ground I've already taken before. I, I stay here, we're dug in. Uh, we, are, we are here, we're immovable. The word of God is the authority for our lives. It's the authority for our church. This is not a book that Moses made up. This isn't a book that Paul made up or that John made up. This isn't something that I threw together. This is the Word of God. And let me tell you something right there. Let me, let me just stop for a moment. Let me tell you, when I talk about that, there are three things that I want for you. If you're a member of Valleydale Church, there are three things. You, you, you want to know, well, what does this pastor want for me? What does he want from I don't want anything from you, number one. Your love, you owe me that. The Word of God says that. 
that's the only thing I want from you is your love. Um, but there are three things that I want for you. Now, listen to me. I've told you this twice before. If you want to know, I, it's not that I, I'm not looking to run 2,500 here. That's, I've never mentioned numbers to you. I'm not looking to run 5,000. I'm not looking to position myself to become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. My wife's already told me she'd leave me if, if uh, any of that. I'm serious as I can be. She, <laughs> she did just this year. Anyway, she, she, uh, th- th- these three things, this is what I want for you. Number one, I want to help you be committed to three things. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and His church. That's what I want for you. I want to help you be committed to these three things. Jesus Christ, you can drive what you want to drive. You can pull for Auburn or Alabama. You can do whatever you want to do in that. I want those three things for you, for you to be committed to Christ, committed to the Word of God, and committed to the church. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. I want to help you become competent in that. That is, I want you to be able, listen, I want this for you young men especially. I want to tell you, you are to be the priest of your family. You are the spiritual leader. I don't care whose feathers that ruffles or who that upsets. It is the word of God. You have the responsibility to lead your family. I want you to be competent in this word to do that. I want you to be competent in the word of God that it it leads your life, and you're able to turn around and lead the life of your family with that. The third thing I want for you is this. I want you to be courageous. I want you, I want you to have some backbone. I want you to be courageous enough to walk out into this ever-increasing dark world and stand there unmovable on the Word of God. That's what I want. Now, you say, well, now how do you know this is the Word of God? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I, um, I have spent the weekend reading uh, in, in preparation. I just, I try every, if I teach every semester to read a new book in the area of hermeneutics or something like that. I've been reading a book on Old Testament preaching of narrative so I can help them with that. And I've been reading this book right here on how to understand and pray the, and apply the New Testament. Let me, talk to you about, let me talk to you about manuscripts for just a moment. I've been off into textual criticism, uh, looking and reading about that. Um, any of you ever heard of Thucydides? The history of the Peloponnesian War? Y'all been reading that lately? The history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides? Um, there are eight manuscripts of Thucydides. He lived about six, um, around 680 to 600 BC, before Christ, somewhere around in there. And he wrote the, the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. And in writing that, we have eight manuscripts left out of that. And we have one that dates back about 500 years from his life. All the others come from about the 13th century. Now, I've been listening to people argue whether or not that's actual truth, whether it's real or not. No, I haven't because nobody questions it. Everybody accepts that Thucydides wrote it and uh, he wrote a pretty accurate history. But everybody all the time wants to jump up and say, well, we're not sure about the manuscripts. Is that right? You know how many manuscripts we have of God's Word? 
On papyri, 131. Uh, majuscules, that is the large letters, 323. Minuscules, 2,932. Lectionaries, 2,463. For a grand total of 5,849 manuscripts. And everybody wants to question the manuscripts of the New Testament, but nobody questions the Gallic Wars by Caesar, and there are only three manuscripts that exist. We accept all of that as fact, as true, as history, but we'll argue about the manuscripts of Scripture. Let me tell you something. Every bit of this is beyond question. Do you know the greatest archaeological find in the last 1,000 years? The greatest archaeological find in the last 1,000 years happened to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. Do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls told us? After years of studying the Dead Sea, the Dead sea Scrolls, what they tell us is this, is that 99.99 plus percent of the Old Testament you hold in your hand is exactly what is in the Dead Sea Scrolls that go back 300 years before the life of Christ, almost to the life of Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai. It's pretty accurate. What about archaeology? There's a great book that came out uh, about two years ago called Etched in Stone, Archaeological Discoveries That Prove the Bible. Well, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. It just uh, affirms what the Bible has already said. I, I graduated with my uh, doctorate of ministry back in 91, I believe it was, my first doctorate in 91. One of the things that was being debated right then is that the name David was never found anywhere in all of history except in the Bible. So we just uh, came to the place where we decided that's not accurate. Uh, we don't really know if there was a David or not, or if this is just myth that was made up by the Hebrews. Well, in 1993, lo and behold, they found a black basalt stone slab from the ninth century at Tel Dan, and if you're going to Israel with me, I'm taking you to Tel Dan, by the way. That's where they found this, and I want you just to listen to what was on that piece of stone. The basalt stone was quickly identified as part of a shattered monument from the 9th century B.C., apparently commemorating a military victory of the king of Damascus over two ancient enemies. One foe, the fragment identified as the king of Israel, the other was the house of... Oh, so the Bible turned out to be right after all, huh? There's a lot of archaeological evidence. Do you know there's not one piece of archaeological evidence for anything that's written in the Book of Mormon? Not one thing. Not one thing. I could stand up here for the next two hours and read you one archaeological find after another uh, that come out of Scripture. Do you know there's not one thing about the book uh, called Quran? that has ever, ever transformed somebody's life because only Jesus Christ can do that. And that's why we are a people of this book right here. Is this accurate? Is it true? It is the Word of God, and that's the way we take it in this church. Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm, that you're not giving up ground, that you're not surrendering or capitulating or compromising the Word of God in any kind of way. Number two, the second thing is this, is that we are a witness. Listen, 
We are a witness to the truth of God's Word. We're not just a Bible club here. We don't just sit around and read Bible stories. But what we're doing is we are equipping the people of God to go out and share the gospel with someone else. Paul comes and he says this, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Doing what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are day in and day out living in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and we are to be sharing Jesus Christ. Do you ever come to the end of a week and ask yourself the question, did I ever mention Jesus to anyone this week? I do that about every weekend. I ask myself the question, who did you share Jesus Christ with this week? Was there anybody that you can say that you shared Christ with? Every single one of us should be in that place. Am I living out what I'm learning in here? That's one of our measures right there. Am I living it out? I'm being taught all of this about the Word of God. Can I really go out and share Jesus Christ? I want you to listen to this. Something tugged at Ronald Reagan on that August weekend in 1982. The president noted in his diary, more of Saturday's work plus a long letter I have to write to Loyal. I'm afraid for him. His health is failing badly. Loyal Davis was Nancy Reagan's father. It was Ronald Reagan's father-in-law. He was a neurosurgeon, and he was just days away from death. Uh, something worried the president about his father-in-law. Uh, in fact, his father-in-law, Loyal Davis, had written this. I'm an atheist. I've never been able to subscribe to the divinity of Jesus Christ, nor his virgin birth. I don't believe in the resurrection or a, or a heaven or a hell as places. Reagan, on the other hand, believed everyone would face a day of judgment, and his father-in-law's day was about to come. So he sat down, and he writes this letter, and we know this because it was in the personal effects of Nancy Reagan when they were all turned over after her death. She kept the letter. The president writes, Dear Loyal, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write to you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you are under, and believe with all my heart there is hope. It was a miracle that a young man of 30 years of age without credentials as a scholar or a priest or anything else made the impact that he made on the world. Then all the teachers, more so than all the teachers or scientists or emperors or generals or admirals or doctors who ever lived, all put together. Either he was who he said he was or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death he died. Reagan then wrote out John 3.16 for his father-in-law and said, we've been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can, when we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, we'll have that help. We have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness, his salvation, and his mercy. What happened to loyal Davis? Well, Nancy Reagan, who was there with her dad when he died, picked up the phone and called her husband, who happened to be president of the United States at the time, and said, I just want you to know that your letter had an impact on his life. My dad trusted Christ before he passed away. 
Now, let me tell you something. Listen to me. If a B actor, a B actor from Hollywood, and that's about what he was. He was about a B actor from Hollywood can turn into a politician and become president of the United States and take the time to share with somebody that salvation comes in Jesus Christ, so can you. So can you. Every one of us here should be able to express and explain the hope of Jesus Christ in our lives. Paul said, that's the kind of church I want you to be. Number three, the third thing is this. He says, I want you to be courageous. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Now, that's kind of funny to me because here is Paul. Where is he? Well, he tells you in this first chapter in Philippians that he is chained between the Praetorian Guard. That's where he is. In the first chapter, you'll read it right here. In the same chapter I'm preaching out of, he's chained to a Roman soldier here and a Roman soldier there. And yet he is the guy writing and saying, be courageous. Do you know, just a few moments ago, I was thinking about this while we were sitting there singing, singing, something just popped in my mind. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, we don't know what that was all about, but somehow, possibly in the great city of Ephesus, there in one of the arenas, they, they had put Christians out there with wild animals. Paul must have been one of them. Paul said, I fought wild beasts. Here he is in prison right now, chained to these Roman soldiers, and he's writing Christians saying, I want you to be courageous. Boy, I want that out of the church. I want that out of all of us. I want us to stand, listen, flat-footed, straight up, and look the world in the eye and say, I ain't scared. Whatever you've got, whatever you want to do, we are not backing off of the fact Jesus Christ is Lord. That really bleeds over into the fourth thing that he wants for him right there, and that is perseverance. He wants him to persevere. He comes to him and he says this, look in verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He says, I want you to persevere through suffering. He comes and he tells them right there, he says, it's granted for Christ's sake, not only for you to believe in him. They came to Christ the way we all came to Christ. Listen, faith comes how? By hearing. And hearing comes how? By the word of God. You heard the word of God. It was the word of God, not you. This is not of works. You heard the word of God, and the word of God activated the possibility of faith in your life. And then God gave you the option of decision. Will I put that faith in Christ or will I put that faith in myself or in my education or in my bank account or in my profession or in my job? Whatever it is, I have the option here. We're given the decision. That's why every time you read in Scripture, that man has a decision to make for Jesus Christ, God expects man to make the decision. He says, you came to Christ that way. He granted that to you. He's also granted us this, and that is he's granted us the ability to suffer. You're going to suffer. 
in life. I got a call yesterday. I didn't realize it was a call from my great niece. I, I, I thought it was somebody here in the church talking to Debbie. And Debbie motioned me over and I went over and I listened to the whole conversation. And then I realized this, they're not talking about somebody here in the church that I need to check on. They're talking about my sister. And uh, the long and the short of it is, is that uh, night before last, at one something in the morning, they took my sister with, to the hospital with great pain, in great pain. And um, uh, the, the x-ray showed she has lung cancer and it has exploded all over her body and into her bones. And um, basically, she has very short time to live. I talked to my sister yesterday afternoon, and I prayed with my sister. And um, I've got to get up there and see her um, uh, in the next couple of weeks. I've just got to. And I thought about this. I've been awake since 1.45 last night or this morning. And I've thought about it, 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 and it's interesting that I'm preaching this passage We are granted in life to suffer for Christ. Now, you're going to suffer. And I know she is, she's going to suffer. Bone cancer is difficult at best. She's already in tremendous pain. But let me tell you something. If I've got to suffer in life, I'd rather suffer in the name of Christ than I had suffer for any other reason. And that in our suffering, whether it's cancer, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's the loss of a family member that we love, whether it's the loss, whatever it happens to be to suffer, suffer in a way that is a witness for Jesus. Suffer in a way that the world will stop and say, whatever he or she has got, we ain't got. But if I'm in that situation... I want it. I want it. Paul comes and he says, be known for that. That in the midst of your suffering, you're giving glory to God. And that brings me to the fifth thing. And the fifth thing is this. He says, I I, I want you to be one together, to be in unity together. Listen to what he says in verse Back up in verse 27, do you see that buried in the midst of all of this? I, I come to see, if I come to see you or remain absent, I, I, I will hear that your reputation, your characters, that you're standing firm. Look at this, one spirit with one mind. There's a unity among you. There's a oneness that is there. There is something about you that holds you together unlike the world knows. Listen to what Jesus prayed as he prayed just hours before his arrest. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us. All these centuries later, that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, if all they know about Valleydale is that, man, those people, they fuss and fight more up there on that hilltop than you have ever seen. Are they going to believe the gospel we say we believe? No. 
Are they going to believe that we long to have fellowship? Well, certainly not. Are they going to believe the testimony, the witness? Are they going to believe anything that we have to say about God and his grace and his mercy? No. Jesus sums it up. He says this, you be one and in your being one, they will believe. The greatest impact we have in this life for Jesus Christ is living like it. That we actually believe what we profess and we live it out. That's our purpose here. That's what we want to do. We want you to be on mission all your life for the glory of God. Now, I want to show you one last thing, and then we'll go, and y'all can eat barbecue all weekend. Here we go. Here is our path right here. For all of those who come, forget that guy. Pay no attention to that guy right there. There he is. Worship, we want you to know Jesus Christ. We want Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. If you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, we want you to know him. Who we are makes no difference. Who he is will make a difference in your eternity. We want you to know him in this. Listen, we want you to be in this worship once a week, right here. We have one worship in this church. Or, well, we do it twice on Sunday morning, but one worship service. We want you here in worship. We believe that's necessary for your spiritual growth. It's necessary for life. And as you come into the church, we want you to go just one time to a Discover class that'll tell you who we are, what we believe. We want you to know all those things and have those questions answered before you, you know, make the decision to be a part of this fellowship. We just think it's being honest with you to tell you who we are, what we do, uh, what we're going to require of you, what you can expect of us. And then we want you to get in a life group because this is where you will build friendship and relationship. If you're not in a life group, let me tell you something. I don't look to see you in six months. If you're not there, that's where you'll build your friendship. That's when you hurt, these people will hurt with you. When you rejoice, these people will rejoice with you. And then we want you to do one other thing. We want you to serve in ministry at least once a month. You don't need to come and just sit at the table and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. You need some kind of way to work this thing out. You have gifts. You have abilities. God put you in this church with your gift and your ability because there's somebody else in this fellowship that needs what you've got. And then we want you to do this. We want you to live on mission. I want you to go out every day and understand I'm a missionary in Birmingham. Uh, I happen to live in Birmingham. I happen to live in America. Listen, I don't know a greater mission field in the world other than America, and especially here in the South, and especially here in the buckle of the Bible belt. Uh, we, listen, because everybody, everybody down here is saved. Everybody down here, oh, sure, we're part of a church. We went there. Man, yeah, I'm saying, listen, you can walk down this aisle and be lost and go back out the, the door and be lost. Being a member of a church, a Baptist church, getting in that pool over there won't save you. You can go in there dry, come out wet, and still be lost. It is that we go out and we live on mission because every single day we're around people who desperately need to know Jesus Christ. And you know the one thing that's going to kill us is if there is not a balance between 
Now listen to me carefully, what we profess and how we live. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, October the 12th, 1492, when a guy by the name of Rodrigo de Triana cried out, land. Cried it out and he cried it out, land, land. Woke everybody on the Pinta up. Everybody came up on board. There was the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria all under the admiralship of Christopher Columbus. But Rodrigo was the first one, and that was important because Isabella, the queen of Spain, and her husband, Ferdinand, had offered to give 10000 and I forget what they called the, you know, whatever it was. Let's just say $10,000 to the first man that saw land. We'll give $10,000 to the, to the first man that sees land. Well, Rodrigo thought, I'm rich now, you know, $10,000 that day in time. I'm rich. I can retire. I don't have to work anymore. As soon as I get back home, I get all that money, and I'll live like a king. Well, he didn't get the money. Guess who got it? Christopher Columbus, whose name, Christopher, you know what that means? Christ bearer, said, oh, at 10 o'clock the night before, I saw a candle, like a candle out there, going up and down in the waves, and it was the spiritual light telling me that that was land, and that was, uh, that was the first sighting is what I saw from that spiritual vision. Y'all don't buy it either, do you? Rodrigo didn't buy it. And that's why when you read about his life, it comes down in the last paragraph. It says this, he was so discouraged and so disgusted with Columbus that he became a Muslim. People are watching us. People are watching us. And they're looking to see that if what comes out of this mouth right here is the way we live this life. Let's stand. If you're here this morning, my, my heart first is for those of you that have never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Listen, it's not enough that your mom and dad was saved. That's a decision you've got to make. It's not enough that you're a member of a church being a member of a church does not save you. Have you ever come to the place in your life where before God you confess that you're a sinner and you're unable to save yourself? Because God has provided you a Savior, and His name is Jesus. He's paid for your sin, but you must receive that gift of grace you must receive it. And he waits for you to do that. So that in a moment like this, you say, what do I do? You do this, dear Lord Jesus. I come and acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I confess that I cannot save myself from my sins. I am hopelessly lost. I'm in need of a Savior. And so, Jesus, I thank you for dying on a cross for me, paying for my sin. And I thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead to give me eternal life. And I put all of my faith and my trust and my hope in you. 
and I do it in Jesus' name. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, I'm going to be standing here. I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me and say, I just prayed the prayer to give my life to Christ. It's not a magic prayer. It is an honest confession of your heart. Lord, I'm lost. I need saving. Walking the aisle won't save you, but I want to tell you something. You can't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he's your Lord, you want people to know that. Others of you have visited this church. Others of you have come into this place and you've been fed, you've been nourished, and maybe and hopefully you've been encouraged and you need to be a part of the family. I invite you to come and be a part of this family. Maybe this morning you just need to get at an altar. You need to talk to the Lord. He's waiting. He's listening. Father, it's in these moments that we come and we offer this invitation time to you. And we offer it to you and we say, oh God, speak to hearts. Do what only you can do. Draw as only you can draw. All for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. You come right now as God. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.